This is Norman Lear with my great sidekick, Paul Hip. Good to be here with you, Norman, on All of the Above. That's the name of my podcast, All of the Above. Yeah. We have had guests you cannot believe. Yeah. Guests. Julie Dewey Dreyfus, amazing. Yes. And America Ferrara. Jared Carmichael. Yes. Oh, Amy Poehler. How did we overlook? We didn't overlook Amy Poehler. I was saving her for last. And Charles Barkley, I was saving him for first, actually, because I didn't declare up first. I get to hang out with this guy. And this is your chance to hang out with Norman Lear a little bit here and some of these great guests. God, I wish I was you hanging out with Norman Lear. Yeah. <laughs> Son of a gun. See? That must be exciting. It's the yeah. best. He's, I'm telling you. Don't miss All of the Above with Norman Lear. The first episode's available Monday, May 1st on the Podcast One app, Apple Podcasts, or PodcastOne.com. Better Call Saul Season 3, Episode 3 is over, but we're just getting started talking through sunk costs here on the Better Call Saul post-show recap. And now here are the two guys who are about to sniff out everything from this episode like drug-sniffing dogs. I'm Rob Sestrino. Here is Antonio Mazzaro. Antonio, how are you? I'm very good, Rob. I'm alerting. This there's something here. We have, uh, we have alto, alto, alto. We have to stop. We must stop. Uh, there are bullet holes in this sign, Rob. We must, uh, we must be very careful before we proceed. Okay, a lot to talk about here as we get into sunk costs, Antonio. As we get into sunk costs, we're not there already. Yes, I guess we are here. I mean, people are listening to the podcast, so uh, it's on. Yeah, we're we're on. And listen, I don't feel like we're in sunk cost territory with Better Call Saul. We're picking up right where we left off with Mike and Gus, and things are really trending in a hot direction there. Uh, but man, we're still in F Chuck territory as far as I'm concerned, Rob. I've been in sunk cost podcast territory where, well, I've already podcast about the first two seasons of Fear the Walking Dead. <laughs> I don't know why you mentioned that specifically. Uh, yeah. yeah, I've been there too. Sometimes I, you got to cut your losses, Rob. Sometimes you have to <laughs> cut your losses. The discretion is the better part of valor sometimes. Okay, so a lot going on with a legal battle on the horizon for Jimmy and his new representative, Kim, against Chuck. Do you think this is going to a long court battle between Chuck this season? Is that where we're going in season three for Jimmy? I think there are ways that he could. Uh, it does seem difficult for Jimmy, and we'll get into this. Uh, I'm happy to discuss, as usual, Rob, all the legal intricacies of what is in play with the case against Jimmy McGill, the people versus Jimmy McGill. But it, it does seem like we could be gearing up for a longer legal battle. I, it seems clear what Chuck's goal is, and that's something that Jimmy didn't want. And I feel like we already know what we think the end game of this might be in terms of Jimmy changing his name, how we get there and how long that that takes we could spend a whole season doing it so we'll discuss that and then everything going on with mike and gus and a real breaking bad style caper going on with everything uh with mike antonio but first how's everything going for you everything's going great rob got a new pair of shoes i checked the uh i checked the front of them there's nothing in there we're good to go how did Mike know which shoe had the drugs in it and which shoe to shoot? I mean, he only shot one bullet. Yeah. I mean, what if he would have shot the other shoe? Fair question. Uh, you got to wait for the other shoe to drop at that point, I guess. I don't know. That... Uh that's something I wondered as well. Uh, he, Mike is Batman. That's how. That's the only answer I can come up with. Mike is just Batman. He knew exactly what he needed. Probably like the lower shoe or the higher shoe. But I don't know how he knew that once he threw them up there, Rob. Maybe that, that cocaine was so heavy that it really weighed down one of the shoes. 
Seems possible. Uh, that seems. What's that doctor doing with cocaine? By the way, is that cocaine? Who knows? It's some kind of white drug, right? Yeah, I don't know. I some mean, kind of powder. Don't ask me. I don't know. Uh, but I don't know. And I said, well, why doesn't Mike put half in a bag in one shoe and half in a bag in the other shoe? Right. And then, yeah, if he just whatever shoe he hit. Well, you know, Mike, Rob, uh, no half measures. No half measures for Mike. Okay. So uh, we'll talk about that as well. Also, uh, I want to say uh, kudos to you and Josh Wiggler, Antonio, on the uh, leftovers post show recaps. I'm very much enjoying everything you guys are doing over there. Thank you, Rob. It helps that the leftovers is just turning full on into the absurd and leaning into 80 sitcoms and flash forwards and different time periods and different uh, settings. Uh, there's a lot to discuss and chew on with the leftovers. Uh, a lot of leftovers to chew on. So thank you for the compliment. We're really enjoying that. We'll be doing another feedback show this week, and then we'll be back to do a recap of uh, next week's episode here at Post Show Recaps. So be on the lookout for that on postshowrecaps.com. And of course, you can subscribe to this podcast feed for Better Call Saul at postshowrecaps.com slash BCS iTunes. So let's start with the Jimmy side of things for this week, because that's really where we spend uh, probably more of the action here in this episode with Jimmy. And then we'll discuss everything going on with Mike. So Jimmy ends up uh, really from last week in moments after we see the events where he gets busted. He really, it's just, this is difficult for Jimmy. He's, he's in a position emotionally where he's fraught. He's in a position where he's completely caught. We see it bubbling out. But yeah, this is, uh, the shoe is on the other foot and off of his. There's a lot of problematic things. There's a lot of shoes in this episode, I'm realizing, as mm-hmm. we go forward here. But yeah, not good. Picks up right where we left off, and it's not a pleasant place for Jimmy. He's, uh, he knows he's going down. Now, I thought that Jimmy was remarkably calm after he realizes that he's been had. And really, throughout the whole episode, we don't see Jimmy freaking out about anything, even when the prosecutors are like pressing him about different things like, oh, you get an upset and you have to spend the night in jail. And he really just keeps his cool throughout the whole episode. Do you think is that because is he sad about what happened to him? Is he just like detached from what's happening to him, Antonio? Yeah, it's probably one of those uh, stages of grief, right? I don't know if he's at denial or, or if what's going on. We see some of those play out throughout this episode. We have bargaining, and then he ultimately ends with acceptance when he's accepting Kim's help. So I think that there is some level of that. Uh, this is as much of an emotional wound as it is a uh, one that he's to be afraid of professionally or uh, embarrassed about or whatever it is. This is uh, the, the fact that Chuck taped him and was willing to stoop to this level. Uh, he's got him in a position where when Chuck confronts him and when Chuck's really trying to dig the knife in. Uh, magically, somehow, Chuck is well enough to leave his home and stand over Jimmy on the curb and, and gloat and say, this is for the best. This is what you need. Uh, Jimmy is uh, basically saying, Chuck, you're going to die alone. And that's the last thing he says to Chuck. Uh, this is a very emotional thing, but it, it is not a, the, the anger is not part of it. I think that it's just sadness. And yeah, the, the most emotional he seems to get about it is when he maybe even is putting on a little bit of a show when he goes into to Kim's office and says, 
I'm going to handle this myself. I got us into this mess. We've worked too hard to set up our business. I'm not going to let this take us down. Uh, He's trying to put on a strong face for Kim. That's about the most emotional we see him get about this. And even to me, that seems ginned up uh, as a show for her to show that he's strong. Because as soon as he walks out of there, he's tail between his legs talking to Francesca and saying, please drive me to my car. This isn't normal around here and all of that. So he just seems really beaten down by a lot of what's happened. And I'm, I think any of us would be. This is a, as we said, this is a Shakespearean level family betrayal, not just a a stranger doing this to him. And that's that's a huge element of this for sure. Yeah, I just thought it was a bit out of character for him. And of course, a bit because of what has just happened to him. But he wasn't like, hey, come on, Chuck, let's talk this over. We don't have to do this. We don't have to go through with this. Like he was just very resigned to everything that was happening. And then when Chuck tries to tell him that stuff, yeah, he really was so matter of fact about, no, here's what's going to happen. I was the only person that cared about you. You're going to die in one of those scary machines now because of what you did to me. Yeah. And part of this, too, I don't know how much that's impacting. It's impacting the the context of this episode. But the subtext of this is certainly that Jimmy made this monster. We know that he encouraged Chuck repeatedly to roll that roll around in the mud with him. He basically encouraged Chuck to blackmail him before uh, before any of this actually happened. So this is Jimmy's monster that he's created in many respects that Chuck was already monstrous in terms of how he looked at Jimmy and how he treated Jimmy in many ways but this level of of betrayal is something jimmy personally encouraged and so i don't know on what level jimmy is is thinking about that in this episode we don't really get the clues that that's happening but you got to think that that's part of it right that this is something that jimmy encouraged and jimmy brought this level of depravity out of chuck Uh, and this is a very jimmy way to handle a situation that chuck has in has trapped jimmy in so it's a it's a real big taste of his own medicine and i'm sure that that's playing a part too he was humbled i think by this uh he created a situation with his own actions and the way that he behaves that that have put him in this position and i don't know how much he's willing to accept all of that it does feel like he was tricked and conned and all but again this is stuff that he's done before to other people so it's not always uh great to get a big slice of humble pie served to you and i think you do end up in a lot of cases right where jimmy is when that happens just embarrassed and ashamed and uh, not really angry just just really angry at yourself more than anything Now, you touched on it very briefly in terms of Chuck being able to be outside and in the sun after everything we've seen from him from the first two seasons and change. What does that say to you about Chuck's condition? (laughs) There's two ways to read it, right? It could be that he's getting better, which we've certainly seen elements of that. He puts the space blanket on. He's able to go out to meetings and do these sorts of things and do good things with that. But we've seen bad elements of it as well. It seems like Chuck is always able to overcome his condition enough to really stick the knife into Jimmy somehow. Whether that's showing up to make Kim look bad, whether that's showing up to try to win Mesa Verde back, whether that's ultimately coming out on the curb to gloat to Jimmy in this episode, the tape recorder setup itself, all of it, this is all Chuck really seemingly conveniently not being allergic to electricity or sensitive to electromagnetic fields or whatever we want to call it when it means digging the knife into Jimmy. 
and more than anything, that's my read on this situation. And part of that is later on in the episode when the DA, the visiting DA who's going to prosecute Jimmy shows up, Chuck won't leave the house. He's asking her to leave all her devices outside. He's not even willing to go leave the house to meet with her. And even when she shows up, he's standing in the doorway. He won't come outside. He opens a window and, or a door and just says, come on in, do this, do that. So it seems very convenient, this condition of Chuck at this point. And you, you, you're right. You point out in other seasons. I mean, think back to season one when Jimmy doesn't bring Chuck his newspaper and Jimmy won't bring it because there's evidence of Jimmy's little ploy with the billboard where he filmed a stunt to get himself some positive press. And he doesn't want Chuck to see that. Chuck leaves his house with a space blanket on it, goes to his neighbor's property to steal the paper. That's the first time the police show up at Chuck's house that we know of. And Chuck Mm -hmm. gets arrested. But that's because Chuck literally does wig out completely about this whole thing with the newspaper. And you contrast that to now where he casually strolls out to the sidewalk. We don't even see him struggling with. He's just there saying, I told you this would happen. And it's like, come on, Chuck. Like, what is going on? You're really this is seemingly very convenient at this point. Uh, it really comes and goes uh, as it is uh, convenient for him. And that's that's a very frustrating thing, obviously, if you're trying to say that there might be some some uh, high road in Chuck's opinions that maybe Chuck is – look, Chuck got screwed over by Jimmy. There's no high road when Chuck is screwing around with his condition like this and really manipulating people as a result of it. Plus, Rob, he fired Ernie. He's an a-hole. Yeah. <laughs> so do you think that we are going to have Chuck ever realize or have uh, this information presented to him that, uh, you know, this condition when it serves him is not affecting him? The interesting person that would be able to do that, right, would be Howard. That's the interesting part of it to me is at, at any point is Howard going to say, like, Chuck, you've been doing so well. You're coming here. You're doing this. You're doing that. Why don't you come back to work? Like, Not a bad Howard impression. Thanks. Uh, I've been working on it uh, by stretching myself out at night uh, and wearing terrible suits and bleaching my hair. So we're in a good place. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know, ultimately, if Howard is the one. That, that would be the powerful one to me. We've seen multidimensional Howard. We've seen a little bit of the... Elements of Howard that aren't just a whole Howard when he's talked to Kim last season and expressed a little bit of regret and jealousy over her career choices, maybe wishing he had been able to do the same thing. We thought he was the one who was anti Jimmy all along, and it turned out he was actually team Jimmy. He doesn't seem to want to always enable Chuck's Chuckness. Even this incident with the tape last episode, we saw Howard showing up saying, I don't want to pay for this private investigator always and maybe nights only and your plan is is ridiculous. So I feel like Howard is already a little bit in that realm where he's looking at Chuck, but maybe not totally willing to always humor him. And I feel like if we're continuing to cross lines with this, that, that Howard could be the one who actually has the gravitas and has the right position to call Chuck out for it. Uh, certainly, uh, Jimmy could have easily done it multiple times. And Jimmy has backed off and, and, and been kind about it. But uh, that kindness may not be extended by somebody who isn't a family member. So I would look for Howard to be the one, if anybody, to call Chuck out and to really get the knife in on that one. I mean, where do you see this going in terms of an escalation between Jimmy and Chuck? If they go to court and Jimmy ends up winning, do you, is Chuck have another move that he is he going to stop at nothing until he gets Jimmy disbarred? 
the, is it a story of Chuck breaking bad, right? Like that's the interesting question. And the, the real narrative in that respect is that of everybody who really comes into contact uh, in major ways with Walter White in breaking bad ends up worse off. Uh, even his kids who end up with money uh, end up in a position where their dad is a horrible criminal who did all these horrible things and they know about it. So everyone in breaking bad who interacts with Walter White ends up worse off, uh, give or take maybe one or two people, uh, certainly the major people. And it seems like we might be telling the same story about Jimmy McGill. Uh, I don't know where we're going to end up with Kim, where we're going to end up with Chuck. But you're seeing a story where at the beginning of this tale, Chuck had issues with the EMF sensitivity, but he was still had the high road in terms of never going to these lengths to do anything, always having the ethical high road, always having all of those things at his back. And now his hands are really dirty now that they're dirty is he going to stop that is uh, that i think is the is the narrative question that we have to ask ourselves about chuck and if this doesn't work out with jimmy you're right like what is the next move if chuck is breaking bad as we've seen it if he's going to slipping chuck where does he land like where does that end up and if he's truly this crazy about jimmy and he's willing to go to these lengths what's the next punch if this is a heavyweight fight between the two of these people and they don't knock each other out here where do they go after this like what are they are they going to start hitting really below the belt i feel like with chuck once now that he's on this path you could see him go even further in terms of his pursuance of taking jimmy down i still think though that this one's going to end with a negotiated settlement which is really not satisfying for all parties which does involve the changing of the name that's still seems to me like where this particular one is headed and not that Jimmy's just going to beat the rap and we're going to continue to drag that story out. And again, the thing that we always come back to with that is like, what does that mean? A, a different name. It's, that's where like this whole major grievance that we have between these two brothers is going to end in, okay, well, give me back the McGill family name. And, and I, that doesn't seem to be like, I don't know how you bring a satisfying conclusion with that. There just doesn't seem to be enough weight in that. It seems to be a convenient way for us to end up with a Jimmy McGill who becomes Saul Goodman. But it doesn't seem to be a way we, we get to uh, we get to a complete beat or a final note on the Jimmy Chuck story. So even if that were to happen with this particular instance, these two guys are still going to be at each other's throats. And it does seem like it's still going to be a problem. There are ways around that. Uh, mm-hmm. Chuck could die and Jimmy could change his name out of respect. Uh, that could be a thing. Um, there are other elements that could come into play in this story. I think it could get darker, though. Like if Jimmy does get involved in some of the underworld stuff uh, in Breaking Bad, he says he changed his name because he had criminal clients and he wanted his criminal clients to think he was a Jewish lawyer uh, and, and all the reputation that comes with that. He doesn't say I changed my name because of a dispute with a family member. So Jimmy's not even doing criminal law anymore. He's still doing the elder law thing. So it doesn't seem like the name change, if that's the reason why or if that's even part of it, uh, will be imminent. It doesn't seem like we're going to get there that quickly. So I'm not 100% sure if uh, if this will be the last this the last blow struck between uh, Chuck and Jimmy uh, and if this is if this is ultimately where this story goes, but it just does feel like this is the case. I, I just don't, I'm thinking of it from a legal perspective. I don't see how he beats the breaking and entering charge. Well, let's start to uh, explore that in terms of these charges against him. Why do you feel like that's the worst? Well, because breaking and entering in New Mexico in that, in that, 
particular realm is a felony. And you uh, looked a, up these statutes, right? I did. I, I did. I looked up the statutes for... Who's better um, than you, Antonio? <laughs> uh, you better call Saul. The ultimate thing is, like, whoever commits breaking and entering is guilty of a fourth-degree felony in New Mexico. Uh, and breaking and entering is the unauthorized entry of any dwelling uh, where entry is obtained by the breaking or dismantling of any part of the dwelling. Uh, and that seems to be what happened. He kicked the freaking door down, and it was unauthorized. Chuck was there saying, go away. I don't want to talk to you. So... I don't know how else you can you can spin that. And if as long as Chuck and the DA are willing to take a hard line stance on this part of the felony, you're going to that's when you get into the long drawn out jury selection and painting Chuck as unreliable and getting him on the stand and really cross examining him. And I feel like the DA asking Chuck, are you sure you're prepared for this and all of that? I feel like that's a signifier that we are going to see some elements of that this season. I feel like we have set that up now that it is in play that whether Chuck is going to be willing or capable. I think the idea of Kim slash Jimmy cross-examining Chuck is a good one. I think they might be able to find ways to trigger Chuck. Uh, I think that could be part of that story. So maybe uh, if they can eviscerate Chuck as a witness, he could beat that rap, and and that could only push Chuck further over the edge, obviously. So I just think it, he seems like pretty cut and dried guilty on the, on the felony part. The misdemeanor part, especially the assault, I think he can beat that, no problem. Uh, the thing about assault, Rob, is you often hear about assault and battery. Mm-hmm. And the reason that you do is the assault itself in most states doesn't actually require that you physically touch someone. That's the battery part. The assault is the the idea that you create that they're in danger in most cases. And you it could be an attempt. It could be a threat or some kind of menacing. Uh, it could be language. Anything that comes into play there that makes another person feel they're in danger of being hit, physically assaulted, uh, threatened, battery. Uh, that That's sort of assault, thing. brother. That's assault, brother. Yes, exactly. So the problem is Jimmy did say, like, I'm going to burn the house down. I'm going to do all these things. I'm going to menace you. What? Whatever. But when we see the DA talking to Chuck and she asks Chuck specifically, did you feel physically threatened, which is the key element of assault, especially in New Mexico, looking at the statute. And Chuck says, no, this is my brother. He had a fireplace poker, but he was never going to hit me with it. That's not what he does. I don't think that that is enough to stand the assault charge because it has to do with the feeling that was created in the mind of the victim. And Chuck is admitting that he didn't feel threatened. So I think that part of it, uh, Jimmy's OK with the destruction of the evidence yeah he could probably be guilty of that or not evidence but property yeah i mean that's and that's a a, a misdemeanor so the misdemeanors aren't really a concern it's that felony that's a concern and it's pretty cut and dry that he did break and enter so he's gonna have to beat it on a technicality or taking the witnesses down which as far as tv is concerned the idea of taking chuck down as a witness is a pretty good one seeing kim cross-examine howard uh there's some good tv in there i think What about in terms of what the DA was talking to with Chuck about, did he have a key? Did he used to have a key? Chuck saying, well, yeah, he has a key, but I changed the locks. Does that change anything? Yeah, that that gets into the unauthorized part of the unauthorized entry that's required on the breaking and entering. Uh, When he had the key for him to enter the house, uh, even if he kicked the door down, he's probably not guilty of breaking and entering. Uh, You can imagine, for example, uh, Rob, if you get in, uh, if if your beloved wife, Nicole, uh, loses her keys to the residence of your home and decides in a fit of rage to kick the door down. I know this is a crazy scenario, but Mm -hmm. uh, in a fit of rage decides to kick the door down because she's lost her key. 
keys, she's not guilty of breaking and entering uh, where you live. She has a right to be there. Uh, she has a no- another way to normally get there. She's just lost it. The fact that Jimmy had the key and it was taken away from him, the locks were changed. That is uh, probably tantamount to revoking the authorization that Jimmy previously had to come and go Chuck's house as he pleased. So that's where the authorization element of that comes in. And he's probably unauthorized because the locks have been changed. And Chuck has specifically told him, don't come in. You're not welcome here. Let's get back to where Jimmy is at this point following that interaction with Chuck. They take him downtown, Antonio, to get booked. Downtown to Chinatown. Yeah, downtown to Chinatown. He is going to uh, get booked, get his possessions taken away. They take mug shots of him. And ultimately, he is going to uh, be talking with a old friend, a prosecutor. Yes, the deputy district attorney, Oakley. Uh, This guy uh, is a local actor in Albuquerque who they really like and who they've talked about on the Better Call Saul Insider podcast before. And they really like using this guy. In season one, he was the guy who in the montages was always saying, Petty with the prior, Petty with the prior, Petty with the prior. And he is so harried and overworked, even at the DA's office, that he gets his clients confused and he's refusing to deal with Jimmy on a case. And then he realizes, oh, it's not even the guy we're talking about. Sure, I'll take your deal. It's fine. And he seems to really be a guy that Jimmy can push around. In season two, when Jimmy shows back up as a Davis and Maine employee, this guy's super jealous of Jimmy. And he says, oh, you probably have like a hot assistant and jimmy's like well his name is omar and the guy says omar (laughs) they love the line reading of the way he's just excited it doesn't matter male or female that he's got an assistant and a somewhat exotic name of omar Uh, this guy is just so jealous of jimmy he's wiping vomit off of his suit from a client he can't even remember which person it was that might have thrown up on him that's the kind of day this guy normally has so of course this guy wants to trot out see his old friend in the middle of his perp walk but there are other elements to this right jimmy is known at that courthouse and i think throughout this episode i thought oh, this whole thing, I've been ginning myself up for this big fight between Jimmy and Chuck, and Jimmy's going to slip out of it because of who he knows at the DA's office. And we even get that later scene after the perp walk and after Jimmy's being uh, first processed uh, when he meets with the DA and they share they share a burger and fries. And Jimmy is clearly, I'm in my mind, showing up in an attempt to butter this guy up because the guy's eating two bags of chips for lunch like a freaking derelict. And, mm-hmm. uh, and yeah, no, have some of my fries, please eat all you want. Uh, Turns out that that's not a good out for Jimmy, that the whole DA's office will be conflicted out, that they can't handle this because they're too familiar with Jimmy. They have connections to the people that are involved. They're going to have to bring in someone from out of the area. So that is not an opportunity for Jimmy to slip out of this. Yeah, I like when he tells uh, Jimmy to go find the biggest guy and punch him as hard as you can. Show dominance, right? Uh, and that's in, in many respects, that's what Mike's been doing, right? Like this is a, there's a lot of that element in this show, and of course in Breaking Bad as well. Walt is punching above his weight basically every season throughout, uh, and continuing to work up uh, in weight class. And so that it's it's a funny line, but there there's a lot of symbolism with regard to how this show and the the universe that it's created has developed. There is a lot of punching the biggest guy in the yard that goes on in in the context of these uh of these shows Antonio, this is where we get kim involved in the story we see her that she was sleeping in her office and then she showers at the gym sort of an epic kim getting ready montage but has it been explained why does kim not sleep at her house 
No, I think that this is probably meant to say she just seriously worked all night on Mesa Verde and maybe caught some Z's uh, in her office and then went out, took a shower, went to the gym, got right back to it. Like this is the life of a lawyer who is overworked uh, and is really on the hustle. And this, I think that's really more than anything what it was meant to establish. It also helps that she wasn't at her house wondering where Jimmy was, uh, wondering why she hadn't heard from him or all of that. She was at work uh, burning the midnight oil. Uh, and and therefore didn't really miss the fact that Jimmy wasn't there. Uh, and so it also gives them an excuse to do another montage. Uh, we had a tweet from Mikey Mike who wanted to know, why does BCS waste our time with nonsense montages? Like Kim's morning routine, there seems to be one of these per episode. But we also had comments, uh, and uh, this one was from Amanda Fallon. Amanda said she loved the juxtaposing scenes of Jimmy getting unready. I think that's mean that means getting processed at court, taking his shoes off doing all the things there, and Kim getting ready at the gym. Uh, and so there are these things. Uh, Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul really revel in these montages, Rob. We've talked about them a lot this season. Was this one a little bit filler to you, or are you, or are you like Amanda Fallon that you saw some of that value in it symbolically? Mm, I, I was a little bit like, uh, where is this going? And then the payoff was just, you know, Kim being ready for work. Uh, I feel like that this was just an excuse to do a montage more than a meaningful montage for me. And I'm I'm more in that in that realm as well. I don't mind that I'm watching a show that focuses on cinematography and they do a great I, job with it. But, yeah. you know. Sometimes it can be a bit much. There was a time in, I think maybe it was season one, there was the, I think it was Inflatable, uh, where Jimmy's trying on a bunch of different suits in that song. Uh, the Scorpio song is playing, and we just see this montage of all these suits. It, it didn't really serve a purpose other than it was really cool. It was really fun to see. Same thing with Mike taking apart the car for so long. Like It, it was great to see that happening, and it took a while, uh, and it was really cool to watch how they shot that and the passage of time and all of it. But did it serve a great purpose other than really being fun to see and really cool and I, I don't know but I like that this is a show that does that there are too many shows on TV that that, that is a signature for them to, to create montages like this and it's certainly a signature flourish in the Better Call Saul universe this one didn't have as much utility to me as the others I still like anything with Kim Wexler I love Ray Sehorn I love or Seahorn I love the way uh, that she's she does less is more acting with Kim we see there's still waters are running deep a lot of the time so i like seeing like this is what she does on a pretty much daily basis probably to just get through the day it's nine o'clock and she's already had a half day uh in terms of getting up at five and doing that and she's probably going to burn the midnight oil again so i do like establishing that kim goes through a lot on a daily basis to get herself ready and, and presentable to the world it's not something that someone like me can align with so i i certainly appreciate that this is the life of kim wexler we've complained a lot about underserved kim and so i like getting any kim service even if it just ends with her meeting Ernie uh, and that scene, it just basically ends with her finding out that Jimmy got arrested. That's it. And I know you've done a rewatch coming into the season. Could you just reset? Do Jimmy and Kim live together or they have their own places? Jimmy can still sleep in the back of the nail salon when he wants. It seems like a lot of the time they do cohabitate, but it also seems like, like with the offices, that it's a separate uh, thing. They at least are maintaining separate areas and they do keep separate a lot of the time and then plenty of time they don't. So I don't think Jimmy has fully said, I don't, I don't have anywhere else to live right now. Uh, we have seen him sleeping in the nail 
Epsilon a lot. He makes the joke to uh, to D.A. Oakley about it, like, oh, it beats the back of a nail salon. So I do think that Jimmy still uh, still posts up in that nail salon from time to time. He's still, it's paid for, but I think he's, he's with Kim plenty of time as well. Yeah, I can't remember the last time we had a scene of Jimmy at his own place. Last season, there was the there was the montage uh, when they played the sleepwalk song uh, with the the Carlo and Johnny uh, that that song. They played that where he couldn't sleep in his corporate apartment, uh, and eventually just decided to go back to the nail salon and post up, and he slept much better there. That was, I think, meant to show that he felt out of place at that corporate apartment. But since then, it seems like he and Kim really do. He doesn't even have that. Yeah, he, the corporate apartment doesn't. We we don't know about the nail salon. We haven't really seen him in there since. Uh, it just seems to be a place he retreats to. It's like his little uh, fortress of solitude so we see now here comes ernesto and he needs to talk to kim and he has a uh, double bad news something's happened to jimmy and he's been let go which is very convenient rob considering kim's been looking for a paralegal right Yes, and also very convenient that he like knows her schedule down to when is she at the gym? Six thirty a.m. Yeah, I don't know. I I couldn't tell. I feel like that might have been him waiting outside of her, the office. Uh, that he wasn't waiting outside. The, I, I I can't. I'd have to rewatch it to see how that was cut again. Maybe maybe that makes more yeah, I sense. Think she was. I think she had parked at her office and was walking up, and she saw Ernie's car there waiting for her as she rolled up. So huge spoiler. Yeah. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Yeah, uh, that huge spoiler on Ernie's car. Uh, and maybe that's a part of the Ernesto fring of it all. I don't know. But I do think it's rather convenient that we have now an established uh, paralegal or legal assistant who is free and twisting uh, and needs a job, who probably is without a job because of the actions of the people who can now bring him back into the fold and bring him into their office. So it seems like we may be heading to a point where Kim and Ernie are going to be working on Mesa Verde together. Now, who fired him? Chuck fired him or he got fired by Hamlin? It seems like he got fired by Chuck. I think he says Chuck fired me. Uh, And this is just Chuck being an a-hole. I think it's Chuck firing Ernie for not telling the truth about Jimmy being there at the copy shop right when when Chuck fell. You can't trust him. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's exactly what's going on. So I don't know. I think that ultimately this is Chuck just exacting a little bit of revenge, being petty, uh, being Chuck as we know him uh, and firing Ernie over this. Do they have a new person who's ready to go to get Chuck's groceries? He said, I have an employee. He told the DA that later. And I found that to be interesting because who is this? Is it going to be Howard at this point? And if so, does that continue to put a strain on the Howard and Chuck relationship to the point where Howard eventually puts his foot down uh, and says, this is it. I'm done. Like, uh, I think you need to focus on getting both your feet under you and start getting back to work here. So maybe that could be it if Howard is stretched so thin that he has to become the new Jimmy in Chuck's life in terms of filling that void since Chuck fired Ernie. Maybe it's the P.I. because then he could double as a bodyguard. I was just going to say, maybe Chuck just now has a security force. Like, Chuck's got that guy behind him at all times, uh, which could be funny as well. So I don't know exactly how that's going to play out, but I like the idea that it could be Howard and it could lead to a further strain between the two of them. Okay, so we finally see Jimmy taken from being uh, with some of the other inmates. Could I call them inmates before they're sentenced? I think so. Yeah, they're inmates of the county jail, at least, for sure. Okay, and so they take Jimmy into the court, and uh, of course the judge recognizes him and sort of like reading off the charges, and he says he's going to be his own legal counsel before Kim shows up to try to become his legal counsel. 
Yeah, and I don't know that anything in this particular scene is relevant. Jimmy knows the judge. The judge seems fair. She doesn't seem like she's going out of her way to make his life miserable. Sets a relatively low bond, uh, all of that. But it does it does lead to this very uncomfortable uh, confrontation between Jimmy and Kim, where Jimmy pushes Kim away, ultimately. And the next scene, of course, is then Jimmy comes to the office and does give that big speech. As we said, probably the most emotional he is in the entire episode in terms of excited emotions and he says like this is my mess I want to clean it up I don't need you to clean it up and Kim really barely responds almost just a head nod and like a one word like okay Uh, and she stays focused on what she's doing at that point in the episode I felt like oh my gosh like this is it like this is their relationship is getting to the point where they're so strained that they're unwilling to uh, that that this is just going to create such a major issue between them and even though I thought thought Jimmy's speech was pretty persuasive in terms of why he felt like he should be involved in this. I felt like it's still the sort of thing that's going to create a huge rift between he and Kim. And yet by the end of the episode, it seems like they're fine. Uh, And maybe that's because Kim does feel like this is partly her fault. So maybe she does feel like she has to be responsible, not just from an emotional standpoint, but because she's benefited from the crimes that ultimately led to this situation. So I don't, I don't really know where Kim's head is at completely. Uh, But it is, uh, it is an awkward conversation to say the least because she doesn't really play a big part in it. Uh, And, and I don't know if we're at a sunk cost thing where she's just like, well, I've invested so much in you at this point. Like, there's no point in letting it go. Uh, we'll, we'll get to that when we discuss their final conversation. But it, it is a little awkward in the, in the, uh, in the office there uh, when, when he's having that conversation with her, especially because, as I said previously, she gave Jimmy a very similar speech about how she earned Mesa Verde on her own and it had to be hers and she didn't need his help. Uh, and we've seen that w- happen with the Kettlemans before as well, where Jimmy didn't really do anything with the Kettlemans. They didn't like the deal that Kim got them. Then Jimmy went and worked the Kettleman's back for Kim. She didn't want Jimmy to help her out of the weeds at HHM. She helps herself. And so it's interesting now that she wants to help Jimmy and Jimmy's saying, I help myself. Now, Antonio, I'm sure this is probably a, uh, a dumb question for some of our listeners, but could you just explain what are the major drawbacks of somebody representing themselves as an attorney? Well, when they're an attorney themselves, uh, it can be difficult. Part of the issue is ultimately you never really want to, if you're the defendant, uh, have to testify uh, because that will subject you to cross-examination. And the sorts of things that they can ask you in cross-examination, they can get into a lot of things about your past. They can get into a lot of previous criminal things you may have done. Uh, Really, once you, by by testifying, you're representing that you have credibility, that you are a credible witness, and that you have these things that that make you credible. And so the first thing they can do to, quote-unquote, impeach that testimony is bring up evidence of times when you weren't credible. Uh, And that can get into previous crimes that that creates a huge argument about those sorts of things and so for jimmy if jimmy is having to make his own case and put that out there uh it it puts him in a very difficult position where he has to create this separation where he's not going to testify but he's going to be the the counselor and then when he's presenting his own case what witnesses is he going to call and it it just becomes a very big mess Uh, the other part of it obviously is the emotional element of it uh but you're really just subjecting yourself to being impeached and putting yourself in a difficult position as a result of it. Most of the time you hear, though, uh, 
about the problems with someone representing themselves, it's because they're not a lawyer. Uh, and then the problems are much different. Then the problems are along the lines of, well, uh, they don't know about how to properly handle procedure. Uh, they don't know the best ways to do these things. They're going to make the judge upset a lot of the time. They don't know the strategies to go about uh, dragging things out. And that's a very different thing. Jimmy knows all of those things. But the more Jimmy puts himself at the center of this thing, the more he puts himself in a position where he starts to subject himself to these things that as a defendant, he would love to be able to just sit at the table and never say a word. Now, in terms of Jimmy trying to take things on himself, uh, we see him back with the prosecutor and we have this scene uh, with the lunch. And what a disaster of a lunch uh, this is. What does he have? Cheetos and chips? That's lunch? <laughs> and uh, and a cup of uh, coffee machine coffee, Rob. Let's not forget. Yeah. This guy, as I said, this is a guy who had vomit on him last time we saw him. And then the first time we saw him, he can't even keep his clients straight. And he's very overworked. His dream is the Davis and Maine job that Jimmy gave up. Up, and he's constantly harping on this. So, yeah, pathetic lunch, of course, that this guy is eating. Uh, this is the kind of lunch. It, it's similar to somebody who showers in a sink at a bus stop. Like you just kind of mm-hmm. this is a this is a very, uh, very representative lunch, I think, for this guy's life. And Jimmy shows up knowing that right. Knowing this guy can be tempted. Like, Jimmy knows the way to butter these people up at this courthouse. This guy, the way to this guy's heart is through uh, a nice hamburger and some French fries uh, because he's probably living that pathetic like two two bags of chips life and it doesn't work ultimately because there is no prize to be won the whole office is going to be conflicted out but uh, still again a funny scene with that guy he's asking about the german car uh, he's just all he wants he's like living vicariously through the life that jimmy gave up and still i think he regrets it more than jimmy that jimmy doesn't have it anymore and they they really like working with this guy i don't know if we'll see him again this season or not but uh they got a lot of a lot to chew on for this guy this this episode including a burger you literally yes exactly <laughs> so does Jimmy not want a hamburger? Why was Jimmy so quick to when he realized that, oh, this guy can't help me? Why didn't he just walk away with the lunch? Why did he leave him with the hamburger? At this point, yeah, I just think it was I bought this because I thought I might butter you up with it. I'm not going to be able to butter you up with it anyway. You may as well take it like I'm not going to throw it out. And I didn't want it to begin with. I only bought it because I was going to try to bribe you with it anyway. So you may as well just take it. And I think that's really what it is. It's just a, I think that it's a it's a clear sign that Jimmy was not buying that burger so he could eat his own lunch, that that burger was purchased with the express purpose of trying to uh, ply a, uh, a good deal out of this guy. And once he realized that was no longer on the table, the burger didn't matter to him. He could just give it away. It's fine. So we spend some time with Chuck, uh, with the DA that's talking with him, and uh, we go through all these questions. We we talked through a little bit of this before. Uh, she wants him to make sure that he will testify against Jimmy. Uh, he says that won't be a problem in this case. It won't be a problem in this case that he's willing to do it. Uh, we've seen him put the space blanket under the suit. We've seen him in, in the hearing with Mesa Verde. He's able to go under those lights when he really needs to. He's like Willis Reed at this point, Rob. Like He could always stagger under the court uh, and deliver a performance when necessary or stagger into the court, I guess, in this case. But, as I said, I think that the issue there is ultimately like, okay, Chuck is willing to go through with this, but as with Chuck as a witness and Kim and Jimmy as the legal team that are attacking him, what does that ultimately look like if Chuck is testifying? And what does that cross-examination look like? And are they going to be able to, to trigger Chuck and melt him down on the stand? And is that how they ultimately beat the case? Uh, it seems sort of airtight because there are three witnesses, but 
if there's anybody that they can really, uh, I think, uh, trigger or put in a difficult position, it does seem like it would be Chuck because he's so sensitive. He gets so upset and his hands are not clean in this one. Does Chuck have a change of heart at all here when he talks about how maybe there's a better solution for everybody? After he talks about Jimmy having a good heart. Yeah, did you feel that way? Because I felt like this might have been his goal all along. <sighs> Reading Chuck is very difficult, I find. It is. It's, uh, yeah, it's definitely like Breaking Bad. Reading Chuck, that would be the, uh, the post-show uh, show with Chris Hardwick on the middle episodes of these seasons of Better Call Saul. Reading Chuck is very difficult. I feel like, I don't know at what point Chuck formed that part of the plan, what his ultimate end goal was. But I feel like it was before he sat down with that lady. Like, I feel like he went into that meeting with the idea in mind that he would get Jimmy disbarred, that that was his ultimate goal for this lesson. As far as whether that was his goal from the time he hired the private investigator, I suppose that's anybody's guess. Keep in mind, of course, that if he's testifying, one of the first things you'd ask him was like, why did you have a private investigator there? Uh, oh, so you were trying to set me up, like you were trying to bait me. And then on that cross-examination, Chuck loses a lot of credibility, I think. And so these are the difficult things for Chuck, is that he has probably at some point formulated this plan with this end goal in mind long before uh, he ever meets with this DA. And I think if he gets on the stand, some of this stuff is going to come out. Uh, that Jimmy knows all of that, and it's ugly. This is a mess. And the other question to ask yourself is how much is Howard going to want to see that dirty laundry dragged out there, right? That hurts HHM in the long run if this whole story gets out about how Chuck made the tape and did all these things. I think Chuck is is thinking, I don't want to really force this issue. I'm willing to do it, but I would rather we get this other outcome where we don't have to go- deal with all of that stuff. I don't put all that on the line. I don't have to go to court. And instead, We don't prosecute my brother. We give him a diversion. In return, he confesses, and we send that to the bar, and he gets his bar. I feel like that was his plan all along. You know, it does make a lot of sense when we talk about everything with going back to Ernesto and everything that he had already laid down ahead of time to make this plan happen. And especially, like, Chuck is not somebody who changes his mind uh, that quickly. I do think that maybe when we look at this, Chuck just wanted him to be scared straight. Yep, it, it does seem like that. It seems like a scared straight scenario. And we know from the flashbacks in previous seasons, of course, that Chuck never wanted Jimmy to be a lawyer. Uh, When he found out that Jimmy had passed the bar, he was gobsmacked. He had no idea how to respond. And throughout then, uh, he has really been not okay with Jimmy being a lawyer. And that has not been something that that Chuck has really liked. And we've seen Chuck blow up and and explain why. The law is my thing. It's sacred. You have to respect it. And he had this high road view of why Jimmy – chimp with the machine gun, he called him. But I don't think that Chuck is at that point. Chuck is dirtier than he was when he made all those proclamations and took all those uh, those nose-in-the-air positions. Now I feel like Chuck is just thinking, I'll try to convince Jimmy that he shouldn't be a lawyer, that he's not cut out for it, that it's not right for him. The, the irony of that, of course, is, is that when now that he's saying that, now that that's his goal, he's saying it from a position where he's guilty of a lot of the same things, the chicanery, the trickery, the lies that Jimmy is guilty of that Chuck thinks would mean that Jimmy shouldn't be a lawyer. So the very reasons why Chuck doesn't want Jimmy to be a lawyer, Chuck now has exhibited himself. Uh, and that means his position, in, as far as my hand, 
and as far as I'm concerned, his hands are not clean. Uh, and so he probably doesn't want to deal with confronting that. He just wants Jimmy to move on and not be a lawyer anymore. He's just not going to get that outcome easily with what we see with this next scene, right? Which is that Jimmy and Kim are, are they're going to double down and they're going to deal with this. And just to tie it back to in the beginning of the episode, Chuck is saying to Jimmy about, oh, it's okay. So you have to learn your lesson. You're going to go away. You're going to do, you know, uh, but there's an opportunity that you can change before it's too late. Like, I feel like he really is trying to uh, establish that there will be real consequences. And then the plea bargain is like, oh, a way out. Right. Except it's not a real way out because it comes with the caveat, ultimately, that you're going to be disbarred. Uh, yeah, you're not going to go to jail. You're not going to be a convicted felon. You're not going to do all of those things, but you're not going to be able to be a lawyer anymore. You'll go find your way somewhere else, but you're not going to be a lawyer anymore. And that seems to be what Chuck has wanted from the jump. And from the beginning of this whole series, Chuck thinking of Jimmy as a lawyer was a difficult proposition for him. On the surface, he was saying things like, oh, this is great. You build a practice. You do good things. Elder law. Oh, all right. But now it's, I don't, I don't think you should be a lawyer at all, period. I mean, this all comes from not Jimmy doing bad by his own clients, uh, but from Jimmy doing a, a particular thing against Chuck for someone else, not even for Jimmy. Uh, and that doesn't mean that Jimmy isn't a good lawyer, but Chuck thinks that Jimmy's moral character is what means he shouldn't be a lawyer. But again, Chuck is saying that when his own soul is now dirty. And I, it's a fascinating thing to me for him to be claiming that he has the high road when Jimmy has encouraged him to lay down and roll around with him in the mud and Chuck has obliged. And so how could Chuck say the real problem with Jimmy is his moral character when Chuck has exhibited the same moral character? The only thing I can say at the end of that all is, Rob, is just F Chuck. Like, this is who Chuck is. He's a jerk. Wow. You really hate Chuck now. You got a good hate into Chuck now this season, Antonio. Well, listen, uh, the Mike part of the story, which we'll get to very momentarily, very briefly here, uh, is there's plenty of big bads in that story. But we needed a big bad in the Jimmy storyline. And I, I think it's very clear that Chuck is the one. Like, Chuck is the villain on this show at this point. And mm-hmm. if you're going to make a villain, you may as well make him a villain that's hateable. And Chuck is, uh, I, I think normally we would say, like, you know what? I kind of feel sympathetic to Chuck. Like, his brother is really the kind of guy who will really give him the most embarrassing moment of his career and not even consider how that will make him feel uh, and and do all that. That's what Jimmy did to Chuck. We should have some sympathy for Chuck. And yet he finds a way and the writers of this show find a way and Michael McKean and his brilliant performance find a way to just drain all that right out of it. So let's talk about that last scene uh, between Jimmy and Kim when they're sharing a cigarette. A lot of Jimmy going to cigarettes uh, from the beginning of the episode and then sharing the cigarette with Kim. Is there any symbolism of the cigarettes? Because I don't remember Jimmy smoking so much. Uh, We we see him like very upset in the beginning of the episode looking for cigarettes. Did, Did the character of Jimmy McGill smoke in the earlier seasons other than sharing a cigarette with Kim? No, it has always been a big thing between the two of them. The first time Jimmy goes to HHM, when we don't even really know what the oppositional forces are there, we don't even really know that Jimmy and Kim even know each other. Uh, Jimmy blows up at Howard over a payment to Chuck and how it's not enough and we're going to handle this. And then he goes downstairs uh, and in the parking garage shares a cigarette with Kim. Kim is there smoking and they don't even really talk. Jimmy's just like, can't you just? And Kim says, no. And that's really it. But the fact that they're sharing a cigarette shows that they have some sort of familial familiar relationship. And that familiar relationship is underscored by that. When Kim 
has her big meeting uh, with the other law firm that tries to poach her uh, with Schweikert and Coakley. After she leaves that meeting, having embarrassingly called the guy Stuart Howard, uh, she goes to the rooftop and she lights up a cigarette and smokes and is contemplative. Smoking has always been her character thing. And I think when Jimmy smokes, generally speaking, it's something that he shares with Kim. So it is interesting that he is leaning more into that. Uh, it's something that I think that represents that he's maybe at the end of his rope, the times we've seen him smoke in the past. And he's certainly at the end of his rope with this. And it's another moment where Jimmy and Kim share a cigarette. It shows the bond between the two of them. The bond is really explained uh, as this fallacy of sunk cost, which is a phrase that Jimmy has said to Kim before about gamblers uh, when he's talking in the past about things that uh, things that they have dealt with. Uh, this was ultimately when that was when Kim was trying to get Jimmy not to just quit. Uh, and, and Jimmy said, OK, I guess it's the fallacy of sunk costs. It's throwing good money after bad or whatever you want to call it. Like I'm at this point where uh, I'm going to continue to pursue this thing because I've invested so much in it. Uh, and it seems like Kim uh, is saying the same thing to back to Jimmy here about their relationship about how she is with him. She's put a lot of emotion and time and investment into him. They've both put that into their careers. So let's continue to pursue that because we've put so much investment into it. You've told me about this in the past. You've thrown that line at me. I'm going to throw it right back at you. And so that is really the, the element of this conversation. And look, I, I feel like if you're Jimmy McGill, whether or not you want to admit it or not, Kim is the person that you most want on your side in this moment. She was trained by Howard and Chuck. She knows how Howard thinks. Jimmy knows how Chuck thinks. If you wanted to draft a dream legal team to take down this case, this is who you would hire. Now, Jimmy talks about a PPD was offered. Uh, what, what does PPD mean? I think PPD in this circumstance, probably in New Mexico legal parlance, uh, it stands for pre-prosecution diversion. Other areas maybe just call it diversion. But this is a situation where Jimmy will ultimately admit to some elements of the thing, but do it in exchange for a diversion. A diversion means... It's essentially like being on probation uh, without having a conviction. He's going to have to go an ex a set period. Kim says it's a year here. That must be the New Mexico standard. But he'll go a year, and they won't actually prosecute him. And if at any point in the context of that year he slips up and does something else, if there's some other issue that comes into play, then that this, this is going to come back on him, and he will ultimately have to suffer the consequences of this deal. It's, it's a way of saying it's a way of getting out of it ultimately and the problem of that with that of course is this one comes with a catch that this one comes with them wanting jimmy to write up essentially a confession uh, as part of this acceptance of this plea and take that plea then and send it to the bar association normally uh, diversion is not going to hurt you in the long run uh, but in this particular case it will hurt him in the long run, and it's designed to hurt him in the long run. It's designed to say, you stay out of trouble for a year, you're never going to jail, and you're not going to be a convicted felon. But it really is saying, as part of that, you're going to lose your legal license. And that's the part that, even though it's the sweetest deal Jimmy could possibly get, other than them dropping the felony completely or dropping the charges entirely, uh, it comes at a, at a significant cost for him, one he's not willing to bear at the end of the day. And if he fights this and loses, then he would also be disbarred? Then he would probably also be disbarred as a convicted felon at that point. Um, there are maybe instances where he might be able to beat that rap. Uh, Kim starts to talk about how, well, there's extenuating circumstances and you can go to the bar and talk about this. 
it's not an automatic thing. However, Jimmy does talk about how in this case, it's pretty much an automatic thing. All the people at the bar know Chuck, at least half of them, he made their careers. So this is, I guess, Davis, I guess HHM is a much bigger firm than we thought, Rob, that the entire bar association or the people that are there are all people that were made by Chuck, at least half of them. So I don't know. Uh, It's a situation where even if he goes to trial and gets convicted, he's probably going to be in trouble anyway, because the people that might be in a position to be lenient on him as a result of those things uh, are people that were going to want to punish him entirely because of Chuck. How much of the rest of the season do you think is eaten up by this court case in terms of the Jimmy story? Like I said, I don't think that Better Call Saul is a show that wants to be a criminal or like a court procedural very memorably, the show opens with a great uh, Jimmy McGill opening statement in a trial of these guys who have severed this uh, head of a dead body uh, and are in trouble for that. But it is not typically a show where we see a lot of in-court proceedings. We did see the hearing with Mesa Verde and all of that. But I feel like there is a lot of uh, dramatic mileage in the uh, uh, option or idea of Chuck testifying and them cross-examining him. Uh, I feel like that is something that it it, it it shows Chuck's willingness to go blindly through this. It could create a rift between Hamlin and Chuck. You could see them really go after Chuck and melt him down. It could create a further rift between Hamlin and Kim. There are all these things that could be there with this. I don't think we're going to rush headlong into it. I think we are going to spend a lot of the Jimmy and Kim's time this the rest of the season on this. I could be wrong. Could be resolved in one episode. It just feels like there's a lot more dramatic potential. Unless they have another story that they would rather tell, feels like there's a lot of dramatic potential in watching the strings play out on this one a little bit. Do so you think we could get sort of like a direction, sort of like when uh, uh, Tyrion on the witness stand, just sort of like a one episode with a lot of court stuff and then not a lot of time on it after? Right. I think that that is, I think it's more about the emotional impact of the court stuff and not necessarily the procedure. The procedure is going to play a part of it. Uh, I don't see this being like a, a big, uh, a big people versus OJ type thing. That's building to a jury verdict. We could get there. It just seems like that is a very different show than they've desired to make throughout, but there is so much emotional heft in the ability. I got to feel like when they were talking around discussing where this story could, could go, the idea that Chuck would testify and be cross-examined, perhaps even by Jimmy, uh, is something that's just too rich, that they just can't let that idea completely go. Uh, and maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe people don't want to see that, but I feel like there's so much there that they're, they're probably heading in that direction. All right. Anything else on Jimmy and Chuck, or uh, is it Mike time? It gives them the opportunity, Rob, to do a Seinfeld finale like uh, Trial, where you bring in other characters. We could see Ed Begley again. Uh, we could see other people uh, who have had run-ins with Jimmy that Chuck might call as a witness again. So there are these opportunities there. I don't know if the show will lean in that direction, but they love using the people that they love over and over again. So that's something I'm flagging for this particular thing. The only other thing about Jimmy that I want to talk about very briefly briefly here uh, is is that I just don't know uh, ultimately if 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 this isn't the thing that pushes Kim away if this isn't the thing that ends their that ends their relationship or puts them man like how much darker is it going to get how much worse is it going to get if she's on team Jimmy through all of this like what happens that 
I'm I'm worried. I guess I'm full of anxiety about this, Rob. Like, how do we ultimately separate Kim and Jimmy if if they're still on the same team after a felony is on the table? Like, where do we go from here? This is a person in Kim who didn't even want to talk about this sort of thing. It didn't want to hear about it last season, and yet now here we are, fully facing a felony together uh, as a legal team. Some people that wanted to work separately under the same roof. I'm going to keep my reputation and not let it sullied by you, not let it be sullied by you. And yet now here we are. Maybe the fallout from all this is enough to drive the stake between them. But it makes me worried that whatever happens between them that could drive a stake between them is much bigger, much darker, uh, much sadder. That's the part I'm most concerned about walking out of this episode. Well, I think that ultimately that will come into play when we start to unite the Mike and the Jimmy storylines. Like, I think that's conceivable that she's willing to go through some sort of like legal sorted mess. But when we start to get into the drug trafficking mess uh, with everything with Mike, maybe uh, she starts to see that as a bridge too far. Valid concern. And and that certainly seems like it could be the case. And I, I do wonder if it's something more... More dangerous than that. Uh, if maybe she's ever put in uh, crosshairs, uh, and if there's something, if there's something like that, I I just don't know. Uh, we know ultimately where Jimmy ends up in terms of the quality of his practice. Uh, his practice right now, his gorgeous office, and the way that that's all played out. Much different than the Jimmy McGill as Saul Goodman we see in Breaking Bad. So he certainly has a long way to go in that respect. Uh, and we don't know where Kim will bail out of that journey uh, or if she'll bail out willingly or if she'll be taken out of the picture. But that's the part I'm most concerned. It seems like it's going to get worse before it gets better. And that's a huge concern. Uh, that is just a huge concern for me because I like seeing the two of these characters together. And it'll just be difficult when we get to that point where there is a breaking point, uh, the breaking bad point. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm not looking forward to that. All right. Well, before we get into our mic side of things, let me just take a moment and thank our sponsor for this episode of the podcast. And those are our friends over at True Car. We know Mike Ermintrat. He's a guy who uh, runs through a lot of vehicles here, uh, both for himself and for different people that he's following. And so when you are looking yourself for a uh, vehicle, you want to make sure you're getting a fair price. You need pricing context, Antonio. Information that will empower you to feel confident. And with True Car, you can see what other people in your local market pay for the car that you want. And from there, connect with a local True Car certified dealer and enjoy a more confident car buying experience. You know, that guy, that prosecutor, that he was interested in what everybody's paying for their car, right? He was. He needs some information, local information at that. Yeah. And so when you use True Car, you can easily find the car that you want. And True Car will show you what other people in your area will pay for that same exact car. Now you'll know what a fair price is so you can feel confident. Once you register, you'll see real pricing on actual inventory. That's competitive pricing offered to you only by a True Car certified dealer for an actual vehicle on their lot. It's pricing you'll see before going to the dealership so you can feel confident when you show up. And with True Car, you can connect with a local certified dealer of your choosing and enjoy a quick and easy car buying experience. True Car customers are more likely to enjoy a faster buying process when they connect with True Car certified dealers. And best of all, True Car users save an average of over $3,000 off of MSRP. So when you're ready to buy, visit True Car to enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. All right. Let's talk about Mike. And we got to see the long-awaited 
Mike and Gus Fring. I would call it a reunion, but really the first time they ever met. It's a pre-union. Yeah. <laughs> pre-union. Is, yeah, this is the this is it. This is the big uh, this is the big moment. Mike picks up the phone and Gus is actually on the other yeah. end of it. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm caught. Yeah, okay. Right. I'm not going to show you my gun. But yeah, this is uh this is great. What is Gus wearing in this scene, Rob? I don't know, but we've talked a lot about Mike and uh, his sort of uh, Benjamin Buttonism in terms of this is earlier than Breaking Bad, but he's looking really older. Are you buying the Gus Fring age? He looks older, doesn't he? Like he doesn't yeah. look younger. <laughs> There's just no way to hide it, I don't think. I don't know why they don't dye the hair. Mm, I don't know. Yeah, but yeah, he does. He doesn't look uh, younger than uh, Breaking Bad Gus in this particular scene. Uh, this is not uh, not the best. Like we did, we did say Jonathan Banks maybe needs to part ways with the son. That there are these elements where Jonathan Banks in Better Call Saul is not looking like he's younger than Jonathan Banks in Breaking Bad. But yeah, Gus Fring also wearing uh, old age makeup. It seems like for whatever reason, even though he's uh, younger than he's supposed to be in Breaking Bad, not a, not a great look. But he's wearing I, I, he's just wearing like a big heavy coat and. I don't know, man. What a great outfit. He's stepping out of this car. Imagine meeting him for the first time. This is ultimately Mike really laying eyes on Gus for the first time. I don't think Mike at this point knows that the guy he just talked to is the manager of the Los Poyos Hermanos. I don't think he knows the full details of this guy. He knows that he's the heavy hitter. He knows he's the guy who's been trailing him. That's why he holds up the note and says, care to explain this? Like He knows this is the big fish that he's been looking for with regard to the note ever since the end of last season but he doesn't really know a lot about this guy whereas Gus knows everything about Mike he knows his full name even uh, he says take care of Mr. Ermin Trout so like he knows these details uh, this is not how Mike typically rolls up to a meeting Mike is like your true car guy Rob like Mike has all the information he needs when he makes these decisions um, this mm-hmm. is an instance where Mike is really caught uh, and uh, Gus knows everything about Mike so for once the shoe is on the other foot as we continue to say throughout this episode so Gus tells us that he doesn't want Hector Salamanca to die. We had questioned that for quite some time. We know that they are arch enemies. Uh, Like, why, if Mike was going to kill Hector Salamanca, why would Gus put the note on the car to stop him? That's not in his interest. Why? Does he fear retaliation? It's possible that it could impact his business. The the what I've what I left this episode wondering is like if he fears retaliation, like what does he think is going to happen when he feels like the DEA cracked down? Like he feels like he's just going to get away with that, like it wasn't set up. Uh, I don't really know um, what that is, but I think the ultimate reason he doesn't want Hector killed is because he doesn't want to let Hector die. We see that play out in Breaking Bad that he's keeping Hector alive is almost a torture mechanism, and that he goes and gloats to Hector and that that his hatred for Hector is actually his Achilles heel. Like that is the biggest weakness that Gus has and the one that Walter is ultimately able to exploit. And we know that that all comes not because Hector is an associate of an associate, but because they have this crazy backstory from before the the prime Breaking Bad timeline and certainly from before the timeline of Better Call Saul when Gus was really young and first starting out. And Hector was at this horrible scene with the cartel where uh, Hector, where, where Gus's uh, partner slash potential lover, we don't really know what that aspect of it was, was murdered. And that Hector reveled in this and he was digging the knife in and really humiliating Gus and his partner and making fun of them and enjoying that that was all playing out. And that 
Gus has always hated Hector as part of that. When he says he's an associate of an associate, though, he may be telling the truth. We've speculated on this podcast that maybe Nacho is working for Gus, that he is inside the Salamanca organization and working for Gus. That tracks a little because Nacho was the one who was blocking Mike uh, when Mike was trying to take the shot at Hector. It almost seems too convenient. So it's possible that Hector is an associate of one of Gus's associates, who is Nacho. We don't know that for a fact, but we know that what Gus is saying in this moment to Mike is not the full truth. Like There is a much deeper story between these two characters being Gus and Hector. And Gus wants Mike to hit another one of Hector's trucks. Mike says he's not going to do that again. Right. Uh, I'm not going to get into this long, like, ongoing thing where I just rob trucks for you. Like, that's not what I want to do. I want to hurt Hector Salamanca. And I think Gus recognizing Gus is very smart. I think both of these guys are, are at a high level, operating at a high level in this scene because Mike recognizes like, oh, well, you wouldn't want me to, to rob another truck. What, how do you benefit from me robbing another one of those trucks? You actually want his business to suffer. And that has to be because you're a competitor of his. So if you're a competitor of his, like we may be able to come to an understanding here where I can do something that would satisfy you and it would satisfy me. It feels like another half measure. We remember that Mike tried to set Tuco Salamanca up to get taken down by the authorities and that that was a bigger problem for Mike. Ultimately, that that half measure with trying to let the authorities take somebody off the board ultimately came back to really bite him pretty hard. And that's how he ended up in the position where Hector Salamanca threatened his family. And yet it seems like this is exactly the goal here. Let's try to get Hector Salamanca and his business off the board by getting the authorities involved, in this case, the DEA or in the border agents. So it seems like this is a very similar plan that Mike had with Tuco, but maybe operating on a much higher level uh, and maybe with a much more likely degree of success. And yeah, when that creates a vacuum, it seems likely that Gus will step right into it. We didn't mention, Rob. That the very first scene of this episode, the cold open, is tied into this. That it's a Los Poyos Hermanos truck we see driving at the same locus of events as we see later play out with the uh, the Salamanca truck uh, and the shoes. And we see the exact same pair of shoes later with that Los Poyos Hermanos truck. So it seems like Gus does get what he wants. And we see that from the beginning scene of this episode. That actually this plan we know does work. And the end result of this plan is... We're getting Los Pollos Hermanos trucks driving on the same stretch of road at a later date. Gus wins. Salamanca, Oregon, at least in this regard, is off the table. Uh, so we know this is going to play out in a negative way for the Salamancas and that they are ultimately going to lose that business. Now, does the stop sign have bullet holes in it in the future? Uh, in the future, it does. So in the, in the cold open, both signs, the 20 kilometers to the border sign and the stop sign are riddled with bullets. In this current timeline, they are not. That's how we know, mainly, that and the decaying exact same pair of shoes are how we know ultimately that that cold open is from a later date. Uh, the, 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 the stop signs are shot up, the signs are shot up, and the, the shoes that we see Mike throw on that very same power line 
are then rotting to the point that the shoestring breaks and they fall to the ground. How much later that is? Is it in the Breaking Bad timeline? Is it a year later? I don't it's really know. It's in the Gene timeline. It's not, it could be in the Gene. could be. Although I don't know about Los Poyos Hermanos at that point. I feel like after the events of Breaking Bad. <laughs> they got taken down. Yeah, that may not be great. So, hmm. um, But yeah, I think it's at least in the future timeline of this show. Uh, it's at least a year in the future, I would say, or several months in the future of this show. I don't know if we make it all the way to Breaking Bad uh, or certainly with Gene, but I think that we are at least in the events of this this show where that first scene is in the future. And it's meant to say, like, you know what? Gus wins. Like, Gus wins this battle with the Salamancas. And we see that play out, thankfully, I think to the, uh, to the much to the non-chagrin, I think to the pleasure of the people who don't like that this show can drag stories out. We get that all play out in one episode. We see the DEA and the border agents take them down. We see that the plan that Mike formulates actually works, uh, and it, it does ultimately play out. So Gus does win this at, at some future time. Like, the Los Poyos Hermanos trucks take this route over. Do you feel like that we are going to come back to this spot in the future and see Chekhov's bullet holes end up getting formed in those signs? That's a good question. I, I hadn't really thought about that. I'll say I don't think we need to. Do you think we'll get there? Or do you think we need to? I don't think we will, but I'm just wondering if you have one scene in a certain timeline without bullet holes, and then we go to the future, and there are bullet holes in those signs, and it's sort of like at the point where you have this Salamanca like gun drop, will we end up coming back to that point? The fact that there are guns there, is that Chekhov's gun drop? Like, we could, uh, yeah, we could see these. Chekhov's bullet holes and Chekhov's gun drop. Like, I mean, this is like the second time we've been at that location, right? Where Mike knows where they have the gun drop. Well, this is a different one, I think. This is, uh, the part of this that confused me a little bit is we did see the routine that the Salamanca drivers uh, undergo. But we see now, we know that that routine has changed. In last season, when we saw the great extended one-shot cold open where we had the border crossing, the very touch-of-evil-esque border crossing, what we saw was we saw this guy who was just transporting popsicles over the border and that he would get a popsicle while his truck was being checked. And that after he then crossed into the United States, he would stop. He would put that popsicle aside, put a stick in the ground, pick up a gun. You can't bring a gun across the border, but you don't want to travel with a shipment of drugs and have your driver not be armed. So this is how you do it. It seems to me like the Mexico side of this equation is this is where they stop before the Mexican border to stash their guns mm-hmm. because they need to have guns for most for as much of the trip as they can. The closer you get to the border, probably the more heavily patrolled it is. So this is where the, the shipments typically stop and they pick, they drop their gun that they're carrying in Mexico. They go the last 20 kilometers with no gun. They cross the border with no gun. And then after they cross the border, they pick up a gun at the other drop spot in the U.S. So that they're usually having a weapon in case they were to get waylaid along the way. They've got a driver who can engage in a shootout with somebody. What's that, waylaid? Yeah, waylaid. You know, like uh, like Shanghai or like, yeah, waylaid. Like uh, somebody takes a bit of the gutter and robs them, you know. They roll them. So, uh, yeah, waylaid. I think that's a word. Uh, Maybe not. Um, But, yeah, yeah, ultimately, this is their routine. And I feel like this is a spot where they commonly stop. But they've they've certainly seemingly added to that routine in that there are now two people in the truck. And 
I don't know to what extent Mike scouted out this new routine. We know he had previously scouted the old routine such that he knew the exact spot to stop at to get the drop on the driver with the stop sticks and the billboard and everything. So this seems to be like Mike has identified this as the best spot. I don't know if the routine has changed at all. It certainly changed to the extent that we have a second driver. But this is all part of the same thing we saw in season one, which is how the Salamancas get their drugs and their money across the border uh, back and forth as they they ship popsicles uh, they ship food and they don't bring guns with them uh, and the the money's in the tires a place that the the, this, the checks were really not going to be able to cover now antonio were mike and gus in cahoots on the exact details of this plan was this a mike joint or a gus joint or a collaboration that's a fair question and that's what i don't know we know mike had heavily scouted the american side of this trip. We know that for a fact. We also know there was some collaboration. We know that because of the doctor, Rob. We see this clinic in Mexico and we see this doctor who is a doctor that we have seen in Breaking Bad. He is the doctor that Gus Fring has essentially at a mobile unit waiting for him with his blood type and Mike's blood type and Jesse's blood type and everything that they possibly could need after Gus's big confrontation with Don Eladio and the cartel representatives that ends in a mass poisoning at the poolside uh, where Gus is willing to go to those lengths to take them out. And he has the hospital waiting to treat him on site. That is the same doctor. This is a doctor who in that episode says, like, that's who pays my salary. He's talking about Gus Fring. It -hmm. seems clear from this episode that Gus sends Mike to this doctor to get whatever drugs those are that Mike puts in the shoe. And so this guy is already acquainted with Gus Fring. I should note that that clinic has a sign on it that says free clinic. I think it's very interesting that it's possible that Gus Fring is not just doing things for bad, that he might also be doing good things like paying for an entirely free clinic for those citizens in that area. And yes, that gets him a crooked doctor that he can use to to obtain drugs whenever he wants. But at the end of the day, uh, it also provides him an opportunity to do good. We know Gus Fring in Breaking Bad was a guy who was giving money to all kinds of causes throughout the show. So uh, it stands to reason that he's even before the Breaking Bad timeline done good things with his money and this seems to be one of them and he was seen in a positive light by the police department also bringing them stuff and uh so yeah i think that he uh knows that that is uh something that also really does help his cover to have this uh double image as somebody who is uh very much a humanitarian Right. But it's not just altruistic, right? It does also buy him the opportunity to have a pliable doctor on site in Mexico who can supply Mike with exactly what he needs. So that's definitely part of it. And so we know that Mike and Gus are at least on some level uh, combining to make this plan because otherwise Mike has no idea to talk to that doctor. That's Gus's boy. Like that's Gus's doctor. Uh, Now, if we had seen Mike go to his vet uh, and say that, that's one thing, but it would be hard for Mike. I think to get uh, drugs across the border, it makes it makes you wonder how Mike got that giant gun across the border. But that's another matter entirely, I suppose. Mm -hmm. All right. So Mike ends up taking a box of sneakers out and uh, he has this plan that he is going to uh, eventually we find out 
put the drugs in a Ziploc bag, put it in the shoe, and then throw it up on the wire. Throw it up on the wire. And uh, Matt Coleman tweeted at us and said, what's the over-under for Mike getting the shoes on the phone line? They say third time's the charm, but those first two throws were Mallory-esque. I think he's referring to the mayor of Cincinnati throwing a first pitch. Uh, Mike's throws weren't great. Uh, I read some uh, information about this episode that indicated they had Jonathan Banks do a couple throws. They had the stunt double ultimately land it, uh, and then they combined the shots. This is very unlike, Rob, the pizza toss from Breaking Bad, where Brian Cranston has some kind of otherworldly ability to just throw a pizza onto a roof. Uh, this is a much more difficult throw for Mike. Yeah. Boy, Jonathan Banks stunt double. Who knew? Yeah. I'd love to see that stunt double. Like, I just really, he's probably several inches shorter. Uh, the shaved head. Like, what age is this stunt double? What sex is it? It could be a woman for all we know. Like, Whoa. Who knows? Uh, who knows what's ultimately in play here? I'm thinking of Spaceballs where we meet the stunt doubles. I would love to meet the stunt double of Jonathan Banks. Uh, I'd like to see what that looked like uh, in the behind the scenes photos here. But yeah, the Jonathan Banks stunt double is the one who ultimately landed the shoes on the wire. Okay, so we end up with Mike watching the guys. And again, you know, we have one of these long scenes with no dialogue where we're just watching what's going to play out. We see Mike has the sniper rifle, but he's shooting these shots off into the air, which is just sort of making these guys believe that there are hunters. And then as they are getting ready to drive away on the gun drop, Mike hits the shoe with one shot. Pretty amazing shot. Yeah, I mean, we saw last season Mike was practicing with uh, Jim Beaver, the weapons dealer, when he bought this gun. And he not only bought the one he felt he would be the best shooter with, but we were given to understand that Mike might have had some experience in Vietnam. Maybe he was even a sniper. We don't know. But that he had served in the jungle and used these weapons before. So this does not seem to be something that Mike is unfamiliar with. We even saw him test it to the point where he knew exactly how accurate the scope was and where he needed to set up his shot. So it isn't it isn't shocking in the context of the show, but it's still a great shot for sure. And yeah, he uh, he's firing off all those shots. You're right. They, they ultimately try chalk it up as hunters. Um, I think if you if he'd taken the first shot at the shoes and they heard that shot, they might have stopped and they might not have been in a position where it would have worked out the way it did. Uh, you pointed out the, the very difficult part of this, which is how did he know which shoe to shoot? But he did only shoot one of them when we see them at the beginning in the cold open. If you go back and watch that, you can actually see it is the same pair of shoes because there's a bullet hole in the toe. Uh, and so it all works really to perfection. We're not unfamiliar with Mike's plans working out but this is a particularly well executed one i mean what if the ziploc bag wasn't in the right part of the shoe that he shot i mean what if the thing just like exploded into like a big cloud of like cocaine smoke (laughs) coke smoke yeah yeah i I don't mean like an explosion but i mean just like uh just like went all in the air i mean it really was the perfect shot that made it like pour out like you're pouring sugar into your coffee Yes, uh, it really was. And really, you can chalk some of that up to the convenience. Uh, It it worked. Uh, Mike is Batman. I don't know how else to explain it. But yeah, you're right. The perfection on this plan was truly impeccable. Uh, It worked really like a charm. Uh, You can understand the, the conceptualizing of the plan. Like conceptually, the plan makes a lot of sense fire off a few shots and get them really concerned, but then ultimately thinking it's hunters and to go about their business such that you've got the cover to make the shot. 
put the drugs in the shoes. They're not going to look at the shoes and think it's unusual that the shoes would be there. Uh, this is a great detail. My understanding is when they were trying to con- uh, conceptualize this plan, Vince Gilligan thought, why don't, why don't you just put some shoes up there? Because you see these shoes. They're ubiquitous. Um, our Albuquerque uh, correspondent, PJ in Albuquerque, said there really are a lot of shoes on power lines in New Mexico. And they had, uh, the PJ said, I had mentally ill clients who used to say that they meant someone died. Uh, now we know the truth. Uh, who knows what those shoes are up there for? But this is something that would be ubiquitous enough that the, when they saw them on the power line, they wouldn't think twice about it. And so it is a well-conceived plan. Uh, and it just really does work to perfection, like I said. Yeah, we end up seeing those guys at the border and the dog ends up taking them down. The dog ends up taking him down. And man, the police are right there, Uh, even though I I guess that's what they do when the dog alerts. They hadn't found anything yet. The dog had just alerted on the bumper. But what that ultimately means is they're going to take that truck apart like Mike did the car in the first episode of this season. And they are going to find the money in those tires. Then they are going to tie that truck to what its route was. And they are ultimately going to trace that back to the Salamanca business. And this is ultimately going to be the DEA cracking down on that business. I'm concerned with what that means for someone like Nacho, who we know is heavily involved in that business, uh, is that is there going to be some blowback on him? We haven't seen him yet this season, Rob. Uh, and he was one of the only real, he was one of the big new quote-unquote bad characters from uh, the first and second seasons of Better Call Saul. And we've seen him interact with both Mike and Jimmy. So he's a he's an important character, but I feel like he's in the crosshairs at this point. Uh, maybe if he does work for Gus, he'll be able to escape any kind of blowback. But uh, it, it's a concern. It certainly seems like the DEA in general is going to be all over the Salamancas at this point. And where do you feel like that Mike and Gus are at this point? Do you feel like Gus is uh, ready to hire Mike? I mean, that where does this relationship go from now? Are they just completely on the same page? Well, we know that Mike was in a position because of his family, because of his daughter-in-law, where Mike needed money. And he needed more money than he could get doing simple, quote-unquote, protection jobs, these 250 and $300 jobs. But we also know that the money with more important jobs usually involved murder and that Mike didn't necessarily want to go to that position at the beginning of last season when he was really desperate for cash. He bought his daughter-in-law a very nice house and has to come up with a way to pay the mortgage on that house. And I think that he's going to be more than willing to work with and for Gus and uh, you know that Gus is really impressed by Mike. It has to be. Like, he, Mike was able to get the drop on Gus such that he was able to track Gus back to Los Poyos Hermanos, which is Gus's sanctuary. That's the place where Gus can hide in plain sight. And here is somebody who tracked the criminal activity of that organization, tracked the drops that were going on at that business. There is some value that Gus can provide Mike. And I think that, my, or, that Mike can provide Gus, uh, as well as Gus providing Mike uh, the very needed money. So I think there is a natural synergy there. And I do think they'll we'd be working together more and more, not just with regard to the solid Mancas, but with regard to Gus's business at large. It feels like this was Mike's opportunity to do what they say in criminal enterprise, make his bones to prove his worth in the uh, in the Gus Fring organization without murdering anybody, which is a typical way to do that. So I feel like this is a mission accomplished, like with flying colors. And I, if you're Gus Fring, I don't know why you wouldn't want to hire Mike at this point. 
Yeah, and we'll see what sort of things Mike gets tasked to do. We know that we have the business to get to with uh, Hector ultimately getting in the wheelchair. So you feel like that there's got to be some sort of counter strike coming. Yes, or some other element of this story that's that still, again, the metaphorical other shoe that will drop uh, at some point in this particular realm. Uh, and I don't know if uh, it, how that ultimately plays out. We know Hector doesn't die. We know by the beginning of Breaking Bad that Tuco is not in jail and that Tuco is still in the drug trade, maybe on a smaller scale than Gus at that point, And maybe Gus does seize a large part of their business. But we know Tuco is still on the board and the Salamancas are still on the board as a drug trading family. But we know Hector has is living it like in in sort of uh, ignominity, like he's living in the desert in shame almost, in a wheelchair, uh, in a terrible little shack. So does that mean he goes on the run and is hiding out? Does that mean uh, Gus does something or something happens to him to get in the wheelchair? It just feels like there's more to this story that we're still going to tell for sure. All right, Tony, let's check in with some of the questions we got from the listeners. BCS at postshowrecaps.com. You can email us all week long uh, with your questions or your theories about the show. Who's up first, Antonio? We got a lot of good questions this week, Rob. We hit a lot of them as we discussed the episode at large. But this uh, this point with where we're at with Gus and Mike, I think, is uh, leading us into a question that from Brock Cheek, which I think is a, a good question for you especially, uh, because I think your takes are a little bit different than mine on the show at large. Brock's question is, what amount of screen time are you hoping for Gus in an average episode? I thought tonight was a perfect balance. Just enough presence without making the show better call Gus. Well, the more that we get Gus in the storyline, it's going to be on the mic side of things. So it does sort of squeeze what's going on with Jimmy, which is ultimately why we're here. So I don't think that we can really afford to give uh, a lot of time to service the Gus story. I think he just needs to be an accessory in whatever Mike is doing, which ultimately needs to be an accessory to what's going on in the Jimmy storyline eventually. Right. Uh, And the Gus and Mike relationship is going to develop because we know by the time we get to Breaking Bad, the connection to the drug trade is through Mike. It's not through Jimmy knowing Gus directly. It's through Mike knowing Gus. And we know Mike is going to get his hands further dirty there. And we don't know to what extent Jimmy ultimately... Jimmy feels like Mike is his private investigator. So we know their relationship will continue to grow. But I don't know that Jimmy knows that Mike is is Gus Fring's muscle or that he works in such a formalized role with Gus. I don't know to what extent Jimmy knows that. So that, is, as to us as an audience, is a little bit unclear. Uh, I like the idea that we could get Gus Fring setting up these things, like setting up Mike with what we need to do. Uh, but we don't need necessarily to see big conversations confrontations between, say, Gus and Hector. Uh, We don't need as much of that. That can come in Better Call Saul, but I think it's important that we avoid it because you're right. Jimmy is the is the key element of this. And I think that the problem is that this is two shows that we have the Mike show and we have the Jimmy show and they want to find a way to synergize them, but they can't really find a good way to make them just one show without making their timeline completely combined. And I think Peter sent us a really good email earlier before this episode aired that touches on this. This is a little bit longer, but Peter said, I enjoyed listening to you guys theorize about where the show could go with the future gene scenes. There is, however, one problem with how this show is structured and what going into the future means that you didn't discuss. If we leapfrog to post-Breaking Bad timeline in the Gene story, we lose half of the show. How do you think they can continue Better Call Saul 
without Mike if they leap forward in time. With how large of a piece of the show Mike has become, I don't know if it will ever have a true Gene season. What do you think, Rob? Like, is there a way this show can service the Gene timeline, knowing full well that Mike is such a huge part of Better Call Saul? Can we do a full season with no Mike? No, we won't do a full Gene season, but I do think that we could see in a final season of the show more time in the Gene timeline, but I don't think that we would ever do an exclusive timeline of just a Gene season. Yeah, we had Jay Rager Meister tweet at us and ask if that first scene was the first time jump into the Breaking Bad world on this show proper. Of course, the Gene is the post-Breaking Bad world, but... It seems to me we could get more of Mike in the Breaking Bad timeline with Gus at some point. But we're getting into a point where the show has a lot of mixed up timelines at that point. We already have that a little bit in that we've got the Gene stuff and we have jumped to all these various points with these flashback scenes with Jimmy and Chuck especially and all this stuff with Marco. So it, it the show has already played fast and loose with timeline. This is the first episode that is so boldly flashing to a future timeline that isn't clearly post-Breaking Bad. I think that it is in the context of either Breaking Bad or later in Better Call Saul. It's getting very confusing, Rob. And I think the point that Peter makes is valid in that the more we lean into the gene of it all, the more we skew that timeline because we know Mike is not going to play any part in that story. We've also talked about how Kim could or could not come into that Gene story and how that that would be an interesting part of the tale. Uh, if Kim can somehow maybe bring what could be one of the only real Breaking Bad possibly happy endings uh, in the Gene story um, by coming back into Jimmy's life and, and it working out better for those two. Um, it, it just doesn't seem to work, though, where you have that much of the Gene story. It seems like it could only really be this this epilogue where it's an episode or uh, the beginning of a few more episodes at most. It just doesn't seem like we can do a full thing there. So I'll be curious. I mean, I'm curious with Kim, with, uh, with Kim and Jimmy. Maybe it's Jimmy who walks away at some point. Maybe it's Jimmy who doesn't want to put Kim in danger or maybe that's what the case is. And so we're able to bring a, a better bow on their ending because it was Jimmy who walked away, not somebody else, uh, not, not Kim or that something bad didn't happen to Kim. So, but that can't that story can't be told with Mike. We know where that one goes. So that's a lot more difficult. At some point, Rob, we're going to have to get the whiteboard out and start drawing all the points in it in the in the timelines with these. The shows. Walter whiteboard. The Walter whiteboard. There we go. Uh, this is crazier than Lost at this point, Rob. It's getting there. Yeah, there's so many different timelines going on and so many different wigs the characters are wearing and so many different age makeup looks that they should be wearing, like old Gus Fring here, uh, that, that we're, it's getting very confusing for sure. Needs to wear the young wig. <laughs> yes, we do. We need to wear the young wig. Okay. Any other feedback questions of note? Nothing of note, Rob, but we certainly did get a lot of good feedback this week, and we're always thankful for that. Again, yeah, bcs at postshowrecaps.com, or you can tweet at us. Uh, I am at AC Mazzaro. Rob, you are at Rob Sesternino. Is that correct? That is correct. Nailed it. What are you doing this week, Rob? What else do you have to, to talk about? What can I plug? All right. Well, Antonio, in terms of my podcasting, I am going to be back to talking uh, Survivor uh, midweek. We're going to get back into that on Rob Has a Podcast. And then uh, I'm talking Amazing Race, talking about uh, everything going on there. And of course, I'm sure uh, everybody who loves Better Call Saul also loves Big Brother Canada as well on uh, Rob as a podcast. So, uh, so, so much yeah. going on. 
I'd love to see those diagrams on the Walter Whiteboard. Rob. <laughs> I'd like to see you vent vent that one out. Yeah, BCS and Big Brother and BB Can. Like I'd love to see that. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah, you are the, the busiest man in podcasting. I'm pretty busy these days. We get yeah, the look at you. Off. We're doing the leftovers as well. As we said earlier at the, at the top, we'll do the leftovers feedback show this week. Myself and Josh Wiggler will be doing that. And then we'll be back with our coverage of the leftovers final season, episode three, Rob, uh, right after the episode uh, this Sunday. Hopefully that'll be up Monday morning for anybody. If you're a fan of the leftovers and you're not listening to that podcast, please check it out. Uh, it's a really fun time. Uh, talk about feedback. We get a lot of great feedback on that show as well. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So looking forward to hearing what you guys have to say on post show recaps. What's the hashtag, Antonio? Well, it's a late, a late comer, but I like Walter White. Okay, better than pre-union. Pre-union is good. Maybe we should. Uh, I feel like there might be some money in that. We should save. Okay, that. we'll save that one. <laughs> All right, Antonio. Again, uh, great job. You bring so much insight into the podcast. I'm sure uh, everybody really appreciates it. Great job as usual. We'll be back to talk more after episode number four of Better Call Saul. It's funny you mentioned uh, chicanery earlier in the podcast. That's actually an episode title coming up here. I think that's episode oh, five. No. I feel like we might have had a hashtag that was chuckanery at some yes, point. Sounds about right wonder if that upcoming episode about chicanery it does involve chuck i i really just am fascinated by the idea we might get to see chuck on the stand here uh that that scene could potentially be epic in this in this bcs canon so hopefully uh they've got a good plan for how that's going to play out i'm looking forward to seeing uh, how that evolves over the course of this season yeah and just interesting looking at the episode titles you know they like to play with stuff in the office uh, we had a lot going on with painting the m and the w first two episodes of the season mabel and witness Interesting. I hadn't noticed that. And this one was, this is the third episode of the season. And we're, where, where are we going? With no, this? I don't know if we're going anywhere, but I wonder if they just played with the M and the W there. Uh, okay. So Baristo is uh, next week. So, and that's an S. So hmm, who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? If you, somebody will crack the code at some point and it will probably be on R slash better call Saul on Reddit. So keep your ears peeled. If we have any details about that, we'll, we'll certainly address them at some point. All right, everybody have a good one. Take care. Bye.